please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Matthew, chapter 25, and we'll be reading verses 31 through 46. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. And know that these are the words of the Son of God. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Did not, I was naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. The title of my sermon this afternoon is Judgment day priorities, judgment day priorities. And for your information, this is now the third time I've preached on this passage. The first time was 27 years ago, and it was from this pulpit, or at least this place where this new pulpit is. And may our Lord God improve upon the changes I've made in it. By way of introduction, Let's briefly consider the context as well as the importance of this passage. The context. 
This narrative occurred during our Lord's final week, which week ended in his execution, his burial and resurrection, as recorded in Matthew, chap Matthew chapters 21 through 28. In the midst of that busy week, our Lord met privately with the disciples at length on two occasions. One was on Thursday night for the Passover meal. This was the evening before he was arrested. And it is called the Upper Room Discourse. You may have heard that name before. And it's recorded in John chapter 12 through chapter 17. And the other time that they met at length was on Tuesday or Wednesday of that week. The scholars aren't quite sure which day it might be, or uh, it's not unanimous. But it, they did meet at the Mount of Olives outside of East Jerusalem. And that discourse is called the Olivet Discourse. And that's recorded in Matthew, Matthew's chapter 24 and 25, the chapter that we're, we're reading today. So our passage this afternoon, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, is our Lord's response to the disciples who had asked him, quote, what will be the sign of your coming and of the age, unquote? And his concluding answer was the final judgment. The final judgment. That's the historical context of the passage. Now let's consider for a moment its importance. Or why should we care about this particular passage in Matthew? And I have two reasons why we should. First, here we find the most extensive description of the day of judgment found anywhere in the whole of scripture. Over 50 times the final judgment is referred to in the New Testament, yet none as extensive as found here in Matthew 25. And as such, it deserves our closest attention. The second reason why this passage is important to us is that all mankind will be present. Verse 32 reads, all nations will be gathered before him. All peoples from all times, from the whole earth, from the beginning of this world until now, will be there. The logistics of that large group meeting is beyond us. We, our Lord has not told us yet, he has told us that we will be gathered before him. In other words, dear one, you and I will be there on that day. We will all be there together on that day. That day with all the holy angels and the redeemed saints. That day with all the demons and all the ungodly. That day of commendations, of rewards, and of final blessing that day of searches, of sentences, and final condemnation, and that day of Jesus Christ in all his magisterial glory. Yes, you and I will be there. And dear listener, wherever you are or whatever you think, I have no need to prove any of this to you. And why? Because first, Jesus himself has said so, as we have just read. And second, your own conscience tells you so. Yes, that inner voice that reminds you of all your wrongdoing. Your own conscience knows that you will one day answer for yourself before a holy God. 
These are the reasons why we should all care about this passage. My sermon this afternoon will not be a comprehensive study on the doctrine of the final judgment, nor will it be a verse-by-verse exposition of this passage, but rather a setting forth of three points, or what I've called priorities, that can be drawn from our Lord's teaching. And these are the three points, if you're taking notes, and I'll repeat them through the course of the sermon. First, Jesus Christ will judge our works. Second, Jesus Christ will judge our works of compassion. And thirdly, Jesus Christ will judge our works of compassion toward his church. I will also be making application after each point. Number one, Jesus Christ will judge our works. J.C. Ryle has stated that, quote, the last judgment will be a judgment according to evidence, unquote. And that evidence, I would add, will be our specific actions of behavior, namely our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, that is, our works. And the passage itself reveals this. Look at, once again, verses 34, 35 and 36, if you will. We're in Matthew chapter 25. Our Lord's words, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Yes, these indeed are the works he mentions. And if you will, keep your place here in Matthew, but... If you turn to Revelation chapter 20, you have a parallel record of this same event in somewhat of apocalyptic language, but we see the parallel of what we just read in Matthew 25. Revelation chapter 20, and I'll read verses 11 through 13. This has been called the Great White Throne Judgment. Verse 11 of Revelation 20 Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. We see this truth mentioned elsewhere, that the day of judgment will be a judgment by our works. Let me just give you, for the sake of time, those of you that are taking notes some other passages in the New Testament that teach the same truth. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 27. John chapter five, verses 25 through 29. Romans chapter two, verses one through 11. And 2 Corinthians five, verses nine and 10. And if you didn't get all that, I can give them to you afterwards. 
At this point, some of you may feel some concern by what I've just taught. And you may even think to yourself, is this preacher teaching the salvation by works? You may even now want our elders to afterwards have a serious talk with me. No, no. What I am preaching and what the Bible teaches is that we are saved from the guilt and punishment of our sins by grace through faith. That faith evidencing, evidenced by our good works. The very thing our Lord is emphasizing in this passage. We are saved by grace. We are saved from our sins by grace. A gift. It's not a reward. Not something merited or earned. A free gift. And it's received through faith through belief, through trust, for a confidence we have in what the scriptures teach and what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. With full confidence, it is true. And that faith is evidenced. It's made known. It's seen. It's demonstrated by our good works. And if you will, Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. If not, I'll just read it for you. But this would be a passage that shows the relationship between grace and works in a very clear manner. Ephesians chapter 2, after the Apostle Paul has taught the believers in Ephesus and reminded them of where they came from, dead and trespasses and sins and all the blessed mercies they've enjoyed by God's grace. And in verse 8 and verse 9, he summarizes that when he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So indeed, our works have no place as to our initial salvation and deliverance from sin. Nevertheless, they are a reflection, a demonstration, the result of that grace which we have enjoyed and experienced. Now, for any who may yet insist that their works will gain them entrance into heaven, and there are many who believe this, I would briefly refer you to our Lord's teaching in Matthew chapter 7. Again, you don't have to turn there. It's a passage many of you have read at the close of the Sermon on the Mount after our Lord has warned them of false prophets. In verses 22 and 23, we read this. Now, remember... If you believe that your entrance into heaven has to do with your performance of good works, this verse is for you. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? All in his name. And what is our Lord's holy response? 
Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I don't recognize you. You're not my son. You're not my daughter. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So we have here in very plain language our Lord's view of those who are entrusting the salvation of their soul to their works. On the other hand, those in our passage in Matthew 25 are not even thinking of their works. They don't even remember them. When did we do this? When did we do that? That's the Christian response. We see in our good works failings. We haven't done enough. We haven't served the Lord as much as we ought to. No, no, the true Christian is not looking to their works. And so we see here, nevertheless, that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, that the good works of the sheep in Matthew 25 are actually the proof of God's prior workmanship in saving them from their sins. So what can we say by way of application that Jesus Christ will judge our works? I have two applications. Number one, we as Christians are to be doing good. We as Christians are to be doing good. Christianity is essentially a practical religion. That means it's active, it's useful, it's beneficial, and it's helpful. Again, J.C. Ryle wrote, quote, Christianity is eminently a practical religion. Sound doctrine is its root and foundation, but holy living should always be its fruit, unquote. So, dear Christian, are you doing good? Are you living holy, as J.C. Ryle has written? Second application, not only are we to be doing good, but we as Christians are to continue in doing good. That is, we are to persevere. In Romans chapter 2, we read, who, speaking of Jesus Christ in judgment, will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good. By patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. That's in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And then we also read in Galatians 6, and let, not, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. Dear Christian, the performance of good works is frequently tiring, and hard. That's why the apostle has said, let us not grow weary. And that's why he said, do not lose heart. Otherwise, there'd be no reason for him to say those words. So have you grown weary of doing that challenging good work? Well, keep doing it. And if you've given up, resume doing it. So priority number one is that Jesus Christ will judge our works. Second priority, number two, Jesus Christ will judge our works of compassion. He will judge our works of compassion. Again, 
Let me draw your attention to our passage, Matthew 25, verses 35 and 36. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Notice the six provisions named by our Lord. Food, drink, hospitality, clothing, nursing, and companionship. Food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty, hospitality for the stranger, clothing for the naked, nursing for the sick, and companionship for those in prison. All acts of compassion and mercy. You might have a question at this point. Are works of mercy alone to be judged by our Lord on that great day? And the answer is no. I mentioned at the outset that this is not a comprehensive study on the day of judgment. Nevertheless, in this large passage on the final judgment, Jesus himself is emphasizing works of mercy for the benefit of his disciples and for the benefit of us. Another question you might have, why are works of compassion of such concern to Christ as our judge? And the answer is, was not compassion the very quality of behavior that most characterized our Lord when he was here? Was there a leper who received no friendly smile or kind word from his fellow countrymen? Mark 1.41 reads, Jesus being moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him. Were there two blind beggars groping in darkness and crying out for help? Matthew 20 verse 34 says, Jesus stood still, had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Was there a heartbroken mother and widow slowly following to the grave the lifeless body of her only son? Luke 7.13 tells us, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. Benjamin Warfield, in his book on the person and work of Christ, wrote this, quote, the emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to that of Jesus, whose whole life was a mission of mercy, is no doubt compassion. In point of fact, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him, unquote. So, dear Christian, this is why compassion is of such concern to our judge on that day. Application. What application can we make to Jesus Christ judging our works of compassion? Well, if works of mercy and compassion are such a priority to King Jesus on the day of judgment, ought they not to be for us? Should we not, as we look forward to this new week, consider what acts of mercy and compassion are available to us? 
What is our response to those around us who are suffering? Whether they live, whether they live far away, next door, or even in our own home. So many of us, so many around us are hurting and many, many are suffering the consequences of their own sin. Dear brethren, as sinful behavior continues to increase and our culture declines into darkness, rather than find fault and draw back, may we take full advantage of this God-ordained opportunity to shine the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and do something that lessens that suffering. Compassion felt should always be followed by acts of mercy as our Lord himself demonstrated. Well did he teach in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. So then, Jesus Christ will judge our works. Jesus Christ will judge our works of compassion. And thirdly, Jesus Christ will judge our works of compassion toward his church. Works of compassion toward his church. And we'll consider this in two parts. First, our Lord's priority. And secondly, our Lord's presence. Our Lord's priority. Look at verses 37 through 40. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? or naked and clothed you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Verse 40. And the king will answer him and answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. You did it to me. Notice the words, my brethren. My brethren. These are his disciples, his servants, his redeemed. In other words, they are his church. Jesus will judge our works of compassion toward his church. Now you need to know that some have taken this expression, quote unquote, my brethren, spoken by our Lord here in verse 40, to mean all people and not only Christians, as if to teach that we as Christians are to show compassion to everyone. And that's what our Lord is focusing in on this passage, so some believe. Well, we certainly share that view in the sense that we are to be as our Father in heaven, who showers his mercies on the just and on the unjust. Nevertheless, in this pivotal passage, our Lord was carefully teaching his disciples who it is that holds his greatest interest on the day of judgment, namely his blood-bought people. And by the way, for those of you who want further description of those who Jesus calls his brethren, I simply give you two citations for the sake of time that you might want to look up later. Two, two, uh, two other verses, Matthew 12, verse 50, and Luke chapter 8, verse 21. Matthew 12, 50, and Luke chapter 8, verse 21. So then we learn from these verses, verses 37 through 40 of our passage, 
that our Lord's priority is his people, is his brethren. Second, to consider our being judged by works of compassion toward his church is our Lord's presence, our Lord's presence. We see that in our passage again. I'll just quote from part of the, part of the verses. Our passage, Matthew 25, 40, he says, you did it to me. In verse 45, he said, you did not do it to me. To me, he says. When Saul of Tarsus, later to become Paul, was persecuting the early Christians, Jesus identified himself to Paul as those who were suffering. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus replied, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Years later, it's interesting to note that Paul himself would write from his own experience. And what would he say? It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Christ lives in me. Our Lord sees himself in us, and he sees us in himself. This is one of the greatest mysteries of our redemption. Theologians call it the mystical union. It is a profound privilege and blessing that we as Christians enjoy that Christ is in us, who is the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 Indeed, our Lord is present in his people. So now let's make application to this third point, that Jesus will judge our works of compassion toward his church. How do we respond, dear brethren, to our fellow Christians who are in need? It is a call for us to stand with our Christian brothers and sisters. As someone has written, it is a call to help the single Christian mother buy eyeglasses for her 14-year-old son. It is a call to visit the older Christian widow in the nursing home. It is a call to pay the mortgage for a brother who has lost his job. And it is a call to identify with the poor and persecuted Christians in North Korea and in the Middle East. It's a call to be the church. Those of you that are parents, how do you respond when you see your children, those of you that have children, spontaneously and without your instruction, caring for one another, taking care of one another, because they want to, because they enjoy it? Doesn't it warm your heart to see that, or a grandparent's heart to see that? Our Lord is pleased when his children show love and affection toward one another and they demonstrate it by acts of mercy. Paul writes in, chap in Galatians chapter 6, verse, verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. Or as one of our former pastors taught, and some of you will remember, he said, Jesus loves the church, and so should you. Indeed, Jesus Christ will judge our works of compassion toward his church.
By way of conclusion, having made application along the way, let me conclude with some final words of exhortation. First of all, for all of us here, for all who are here this morning or who may hear this message, believer and unbeliever alike, we should greatly value, all of us should greatly value the mercy of God in disclosing to us this awesome and climactic event which will certainly take place and in which we will all be a part. We should greatly value the mercy of God in disclosing, that is, in revealing to us, before it happens, this awesome and climactic event which will certainly take place and in which we will certainly all be a part. Let me give a few words to the unbelievers that are here and then a final word to believers. Dear unbeliever, are you afraid of the day of judgment? If not, you have every reason to be. To be. Although this scripture passage is primarily, primarily directed to believers, unbelievers are mentioned. For in verse 45, Jesus addresses them when he says, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, that is, his brethren, you did not do it to me. Notice that the way you respond to the Lord's brethren, that is, believers, is seen by the Lord as how you respond to him. How have you responded to those who, out of love and concern for your soul, have shared with you the gospel of Jesus Christ? How have you responded? How are you responding right now? Dear young person, do you realize that when your loving parent or friend sat by you on the sofa with an open Bible and shared with you the truths of God that might impact your life and encourage you to obey the God that made you? And you've seen them show you your need of forgiveness, which we all have, and the only provision that has been provided by the God of heaven is through the life and death of his own son? How have you responded to that? Do you realize that that was Christ speaking to you? You might say, oh no, Mr. Aragon, my parents are no Christ. Okay. When they're speaking to you, and when anybody, as I am right now, sharing the truths of God, that's Christ talking to you. He said, when you've done this to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. And as long as that truth is being delivered and made plain for you to understand, that's Christ talking to you, as if he were sitting right next to you in person. Your lack of concern, your unbelief, and your putting it off, all of that is observed by Jesus, and he takes it personally, and he takes it seriously. And so should you. I encourage you, no, I beg of you, reach out to God in your soul. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You don't want him to say to you, as he says in verse 41, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
Now a final word to the believer. Dear brother or sister, are you afraid of the day of judgment? Does the idea of standing before an almighty and holy God cause you concern? If so, let me encourage you. I can do no better than to quote the words of Jim Dumm, a Reformed Baptist brother who pastors in New Jersey. And I'm quoting from the book, A New Exposition of the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. Quote, the Christians should not view the last judgment with fear and dread, but with joyful anticipation of divine approval and reward. In that day of judgment, God isn't going to parade our sins and faults and failings before the universe. He isn't going to rub our noses in our sin, as it were, to shame us. No, our sins are covered in the blood of Christ, and he has declared in his holy word, I will remember their sins no more. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. Nothing but blessing and reward await those who are trusting in Christ in that day. Unquote. No, dear Christian, our Lord will not remember your sins, but what he will remember are your works, especially your works done for the good of his people. As Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 reads, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints, and that you do minister. So, dear Christian, you give that cup of cold water in the name of Christ, for he has promised in Mark chapter six, uh, chapter 9 that you will by no means lose your reward. Amen. Let's pray. Our dear, gracious, and heavenly Father, Lord, who are we to receive such insights as to the reality of the future and your so great judgment? And we bow and worship before you, Lord Jesus, as you come in all your glory with your saints, in your, in your righteous judgment, holiness, mercy and love. We thank you, Lord, for making your truth known to us through the scriptures and giving us, those that are Christians here, the faith to believe. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be mindful of the priorities that you exemplified when you were on earth and showing mercy and compassion to others. Help us, dear Lord, to shine as a light in a dark place where you have planted us. Give us strength when we are discouraged, or we're confused, we don't know how to minister or to what extent. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see that the fields are ripe for harvest. We pray, Father, for those among us who yet know not Christ, that you'd be pleased to set upon them a sense of their own standing before you, their need to be forgiven of their sins, which they know in their heart of hearts that they have committed against you. We bless and thank you, Father, for the Church of Christ of which we are a part. We pray you continue to be with us as we remember your death until you come. Amen.